Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Lord, you are righteous, that your rules are right. Lord, that you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness in all faithfulness. Lord, help us with all zeal that consumes us, that we would forget the, the words of our foes, forget the lies of the enemy, but hold fast to your promises, the promise that is well tried, that we would seek to be able to love your word. Help us to be able to do so as we see your promises fulfilled. In all circumstances, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 4, verse 27 to 5, verse 2. This is God's holy, inerrant, life-giving word. Please take heed how you hear. The Lord said to Moses, go in, go, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses said, and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the people of Israel Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, and that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Have you ever in your life stood on the edge of a choice which would change your life in a drastic way? Thinking about who you would marry, the, the major you would take in college, the, the house you would buy, the place you would live, a job you would take. Imagine standing on the edge of a river and there's a line between safety and uncertainty. The moment that is before you is pivotal. The weight of the decision hangs in the air. This is what happened to those who surrounded Julius Caesar in ancient Rome as they gazed upon the Rubicon River. The choice that was presented to them by Julius Caesar, this army, it was monumental. To be able to cross the river with Julius Caesar and his army, would mean to be able to defy the authority of the Roman Senate, ushering in a new chapter of history. In this tense moment, Julius Caesar turns to his soldiers and says, Alia yachta est, which means the die is cast. He draws a line in the sand. And, and if you were to step over this line, then there was a point of no return. 
There was a point your decision was made. Your allegiance was chosen. Your allies were those who were on the same side of the line as you. And in today's passage, we see how various people respond to God, drawing a line in the sand of whose their allegiance will go to. The first thing that we see is Aaron obeyed. Aaron obeyed. In chapter 4, Moses has given all of his excuses to the Lord. In that burning bush incident, the Lord's anger is kindled against Moses because all of the questions that he raised, he turns to him asking so many questions, explaining that he's not eloquent in speech. He's given the promise that the Lord would be with him. The Lord would give him the words to be able to say. But eventually in verse 13, Moses turns around and says, send someone else, anyone but me. And we see here the, the unity of Moses and Aaron together. This foundational truth that is found throughout all of Exodus and even in the Levitical law. The Moses needs a sacrificing priest, Aaron. And as the anger of the Lord is kindled, Moses is given this grace that Aaron is coming to greet him. Now, the following verses appear that Moses then returns to Midian, and from then Midian, he then heads towards Egypt, and most likely a period of time has passed in this because of the Lord's urging Moses to be able to go as they stop in the lodging place in verse 24. And after all this, we're told that then Moses is visited by his brother Aaron on the mountain of God, which is Horeb. So often when we come to dilemmas like this, at what point in the timeline did Aaron and Moses meet together? It seems a large period of time has happened from verse 14 to now verse uh, 27. But we want to know in these stories, we want to focus on dates, times, periods, intervals. But often the Bible doesn't present us with all of these details. Often they're left to speculation. And we, if we read this and uh, specifically, I think we often, in our interpretation, give a one-interpretation answer. We need to understand the Bible doesn't provide all these details. Whether Aaron comes and visits him right at that very moment or whether there's a period of time, both can be true. Especially when we know that God is all-knowing, about all of the outcome. Although Aaron might not at that very point be on his way to the mountain, he would be coming to meet Moses soon. And the Lord speaks to Aaron to be able to go and meet Moses in the wilderness. I don't seek to be able to spend a large amount of time on this, but here's just a few quick thoughts. As the Lord speaks to Moses, uh, Aaron, it seems that there's... The silence of God was absent since the days of of Jacob. But just as the Lord spoke to Moses, he also speaks to Aaron. When we think about this, uh, the pivotal moment in this time of history, that God is accomplishing what he needs to accomplish through his means and purposes. 
interesting thing to be able to consider is that Moses knew, unless for the sake of brevity is not included, he knew Moses. He knew that his brother Moses, where he was, what he was doing, they had some form of relationship after, even after these 80 years of Moses living in a different house in different parts of the world. The last interesting comment is that there's what seems to take Moses a large amount of time to be able to obey God's word. He's hesitant at first meeting with God. It seems that Aaron is responsive. And so he went. He heard the word of the Lord and he went. Compared to Moses' response, send someone else. Here, Aaron is willing to be able to obey. So Aaron and Moses meet in the wilderness. Moses tells Aaron of all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, including the signs that the Lord had commanded him to perform. And at this point, we see a very pivotal point in the book of Exodus. We'll see this clearly as the story progresses. But here, these two brothers become a unified, generally, a unified team. Just as the Lord had told Moses earlier in the chapter. So it's most likely at this point, now Moses and Aaron are together, that Moses' family returns back to Midian. We see them, we don't see them again until chapter 18. And Moses and Aaron together as a team go and stand before the elders Actually, the sons of Israel, elders of the sons of Israel. We see this as God had told Moses exactly what had happened, what he was going to do in chapter 3. Now, on another side note, it's interesting to note that here, although that they are a whole a nation underneath Pharaoh, they still hold their own sense of leadership, their own structure which is found, interestingly, in elders. Now, without turning to a sermon on church government, we need to note that this is really the terminology that is used as the church begins in the structure that they're using pre-used terms that are understood in a culture found in the nation of Israel. That in the early church, when they sought to be able to call leaders by a title who oversee and govern, that they used a term which had been used in the past of elders. Again, we see this practice, this continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, as the Westminster calls the church, uh, the Israel, the church under age. But as the people gather together, these elders gather together, and Aaron speaks the word of the Lord just as Moses had been told. Chapter 3, we're told that Aaron would speak to the people of God. We're told what he would say, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and all that you have done in Egypt, and I have promised that I will bring up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jesubites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord told Moses that he would then perform three signs in front of the people if they didn't listen. 
From what's recorded in chapter 4, we see that the, the, the people were hesitant at, at first, for he performed signs. Now, we're not specifically told who performed these signs. If, if you read it directly, it seems that Aaron spoke these words the Lord had done and did the signs in the sight of the people. That Aaron is the closest uh, subject which is used in this term, in this sentence. Now, it, previously, the Lord said that Aaron would speak and Moses would perform the signs in chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. In chapter 7, it's Aaron's staff that's turned into the serpent. Aaron is the closest subject in the sentence. So many have suggested that it's only Aaron who didn't only speak, but he also performed the signs as well. We're not specifically told. Therefore, should be cautious to be able to make comments with grand certainty. All the Hebrew says is that he did the signs. We're not told specifically who he is. But actually, that's exactly what the psalmist records, that even if Aaron did do these signs, the psalmist in Psalm 105 says, God sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. As we will see that Aaron is also sent to be able to do signs, and he also speaks as well. Both Aaron and Moses perform signs. So in Aaron's obedience, in contrast to Moses' obedience, which is somewhat slow, but Aaron there is, is set as one who obeys. Now this will be interesting as time progresses. It is Moses who ultimately, who in the end, obeys more frequently, and Aaron is the one who gets led astray. But the second thing that we see is that Aaron obeyed, and the second thing is that the people believed. Verse 31 is a tremendous and concerning verse. Now we're told together in verses earlier in 8 and 9 that they would not listen to Moses after the signs. Uh, they do not listen to the Moses. Then the signs, then they will believe. The fact that we're told this, that they performed signs, indicated they did not listen at first. Then the outcome was that the people did believe eventually. Now this is the response which is found in Genesis chapter 15 where Abraham believed. The Lord spoke his promise to him, and Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But Abraham believes in faith, seeing from afar the promises that God would give him, that he would be a father of nations. The people, on the other hand, standing before Moses and Aaron, did not see, have the same faith as Abraham. Abraham believes the promise, and then... He, uh, as he heard the promise. The people believe because they not only heard the promise, but they saw the signs. Now this will be a great danger to the people of Israel. As they wander in the wilderness, they're not able quite to be able to see completely by faith. Their belief is based on what they see rather than what they have heard. They, they will see the fruit of the promised land. 
but the fruit of the promised land will not be enough for them. They will see with their eyes. They will see those who dwell in the land. Their problem will be that they will see through their eyes, rather hearing through their ears. They will explain that they're like grasshoppers in the giants of the land. Therefore, they don't take heed. They don't believe God's promise. This will be their famous, uh, their fault in the golden calf incident. They want to be able to see the God who rescued them. Not merely to be able to worship Him and adore Him. Giving Him all the glory. But they ultimately go and do this because they can't see Moses. They live with their eyes and not their ears. They believe because they see the signs. Not because they obey God's word. What we'll actually see is, is they, they believe to some extent, but when it doesn't happen immediately, when they don't see results immediately, then they're disheartened, discouraged. So it's concerning in a way that we see a pattern here that they need to be able to see rather than to believe, like Abraham did. However, all is not bleak and lost. The response is not purely after what they see through the signs, but also upon their hearing. You see this clearly when Moses records that they heard. And the people believed, and when they heard the Lord had visited his people of Israel and he had sent their, seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. They cried out at the end of chapter 2. And now they had finally heard a response back from the Lord. After this period of time, it must have seemed like silence. Save us, deliver us, free us from the hand of this oppressive Pharaoh. But nothing. Years of toil and sacrifice, tears and pain. But now they finally hear that the Lord has seen them. That He has seen their affliction. He has visited them. Now we might hear this, and in our pain and our suffering, want to cry out, So what? What are you doing about a God? When will this end? Why haven't you done anything yet? At this point, nothing has changed. All they have heard is God has visited them and God has seen them. And their response is not more questions. Their response is worship. To bow down and worship God. The response of questions is is one filled with prideful arrogance towards God. But the second is the one which the Israelites does is humble reliance upon God. There is no other correct response 
to God unless it is worship. When they're confronted with the realities of who God is, that we should always seek to be able to bow down before Him. Actually, that's what worship is. There is something or someone which the worshiper believes to be worthy, honor, or renown. And God is worthy. The people also realize that they are unworthy. Once they hear that God has visited them and seen their affliction, they realize that they are unworthy compared to God. This is what we should do in our worship. When we worship God, we're not adding glory to His name, but declaring that God is glorious. When we worship God, we're not adding worth to God, but proclaiming that God is worthy. That you can worship God even in the midst of trial and pain and suffering. This is true worship because you depend not on your circumstances, but the God who places and is over all circumstances. The people of Israel have nothing. They have not received the promise of God yet. But they're told that He will save them. He will deliver them. He has visited them. He has seen them. Nothing tangible to be held in their hands at this point, and yet they worship God. This truly is the mark of a true believer to be able to worship God, not when things are great and grand and you have all the blessings in which you cannot even dispose of. The true worshiper of God worships God in the depths of a pit to the height of a mountain. Whether you have nothing or everything, when Job's wife tells him, just curse God and die, he turns around and tells her, should I give thanks and glory to God when I have much? Why not when he takes things away from me? When Paul and Silas are in the prison, they're not seeking there to be able to mourn. They're seeking there to be able to worship God, to rejoice and give thanks to God. Whatever the circumstances, Paul says that I rejoice in all ways in all times. Worshiping God. That we too are called to be able to worship Him. Whether we find ourselves with much to be able to give thanks for, or that list is hard to be able to write. We have a lot to give thanks for, even if we do not hold the physical promise in our hands. That we worship God for who He is. But yet how different the response is of that of Pharaoh. Aaron obeyed, the people worshipped, but Pharaoh opposed. We'll look more at this passage as a whole next time, but here briefly, Pharaoh's response is in contrast to the people of God. Aaron and Moses go to the people of God and they hear of the promises. But yet when Moses and Aaron speak to Pharaoh, they say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. However, just as the Lord had told Moses that the people would listen, 
that he send in his brother Aaron? He also told Moses that Pharaoh would not listen. They come before Pharaoh. They don't stand there and say, well, we as Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel have decided that we are going to, we think that it's time that you let us go. They come in the authority of God. Did they be able to declare before God what the Lord had commanded to Pharaoh? Let the people go. Now, this is truly understood when the Lord turns around and says, Who are you? Moses in the burning bush is saying, Who am I that you're going to send me to Pharaoh? And the Lord keeps on pointing him back to who the Lord is. And here at this moment, here, Pharaoh turns around and said, who are you, Moses and Aaron, to be able to ask this question? They don't, he doesn't ask, who are they? He asks, who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh's response is in two parts, one of ignorance and one of opposition. The first of ignorance. Pharaoh questions God's identity by asking, who is the Lord? Pharaoh understands that he, Moses and Aaron stand there, not on their own authority, but authority of the Lord. But Pharaoh doesn't even recognize his name. But he also states that he does not know the Lord. Now exactly, they will, he will know the Lord by the end of this. God will show Pharaoh and the Egyptians his might, his power, that they will know the Lord as we see in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5. But we also need to understand something very important. Just because someone says they do not know the Lord does not mean the Lord does not exist. Nor, just because they do not know the Lord, that they are not held responsible for not listening or obeying God's word. That I can get pulled over for speeding, although truly I am ignorant of the speed limit, and that I was breaking the law, that does not negate that there was a speed limit that I did not know about. My ignorance does then not make me guiltless. So no one can stand at the end and stand and say, I did not know the Lord. Pharaoh would be held responsible and accountable for his actions. Paul actually explains in Romans chapter 1 that men suppress the truth, that what can be known of God is plain to them. That God has shown it to them through His eternal power, His divine nature, through all of creation. That truly they do know the Lord, they do know God, but they do not worship God or give thanks to Him. Pharaoh sits there and says, I don't know him, therefore I don't need to listen to him. Well, that's not true, as we will see. Now, there's grace through the prophet going and explaining. There's grace through the Lord showing him of his might and wonder. But he still doesn't want to know him. And it doesn't then make him guiltless. The second part is his opposition. Pharaoh might be ignorant of who the Lord is, but he's not ignorant about what the request is. He understands it very clearly. For he says that he will refuse to let God's people go. He opposes God's command. 
actually based in it upon his ignorance. But he does so very boldly to be able to let God's people go. He asserts his authority and claims to be higher than God's authority. Again, this is exactly the reaction of the people in Romans chapter 1. Not merely are they neutral towards God in their ignorance, but they're opposed to God in their ignorance. They worship creatures rather than the Creator. They're opposed to God's created world and give up natural relations for unnatural relations. They oppose God's righteous decree, practicing things that they should not be done. There's no neutrality principle when it comes to how you relate to God. Romans chapter 1 says that there's, there's those who knew God, who suppress the truth, who claim ignorance, who are handed over to these lusts and passions, all because they did not worship and give thanks to God. There's no neutrality principle in God's world. There's only sheep and goats. There is no third category. And Pharaoh blatantly refuses to let God's people go. And as we will see as the story progresses, that even his opposition places more of a burden upon God's people. There's a line in the sand before us that our response is not merely about this life, though it does affect this life and the life that we live, but this line in the sand draws eternal implications. Just as Aaron obeyed, we too can choose to heed God's voice and respond with swift obedience. Just as the people believe through hearing, we too can anchor our faith in the Word, not with what we see, or the responses in which we demand, or the promise in which we trust. That we should heed the warning and steer clear of the path that Pharaoh chose. A path of ignorance and opposition. That we do not claim our own authority and blind us to the supremacy of God. Instead, may we stand before the Lord in awe recognizing that line that we cross is not one of mere allegiance, but one of surrender, embracing God's call to follow Him wholeheartedly, to not be right in our own eyes, but stand before God. The line is drawn. Will we be like those, like Aaron, who walk in obedience? Will we join the faithful who, like the Israelites, believe through hearing, and worship in humility? Will we stand as opponents, like Pharaoh, refusing to acknowledge God's rule? May our lives bear witness to our decision. May our hearts echo the truth proclaimed by Joshua. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. O gracious and most glorious Father, we give you thanks and praise for the glorious truth as we see found in your scripture. Lord, that there is forever two paths before us, the one which is narrow and the one which is wide, which many people walk. Lord, help us to choose 
to be able to follow you, to be able to serve you and you alone. Help us to be able to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to be able to follow the path in which Christ walked. Help us to be able to emulate Christ on this earth. Lord, we pray for those who are opposed to you. Lord, we pray that you would use those vessels for honor or for dishonor as you seek to be able to do, whether they're like Pharaoh, whose destruction will meet his end, or whether it's like Paul in which you will seek to be able to use that vessel once of dishonor and turn it into a vessel of honor. Lord, we pray that we would see your glory in all things. Help us to do so, for we need your help. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.